Heavenly Father, it's such a joy to be in your presence here this morning. Thank you for inviting us. Father, thank you for joining us. Lord, I ask your, your blessing on this time as we turn our attention to your word. May it be fruitful. May it be a blessing to each one of us. Father, I would ask that you would uh, indwell me, that you would anoint me with your spirit, that I might uh, preach this word uh, with power and with conviction. Father, and I pray that you would open our ears as a congregation, that we might hear what you have to say to us this day. Lord, may it, may it be a blessing to us. May it benefit us. May it help us to grow more in the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name I pray these things. Amen. I'm going to read to you a few quotes made by some famous people, and I want you to tell me what those quotes have in common, right? Men work together whether they work together or apart. That's Robert Frost. What a pity that youth must be wasted on the young, George Bernard Shaw. I can resist anything but temptation, Oscar Wilde. Life is a preparation for the future, and the best preparation for the future is to live as if there were none. That's Albert Einstein. I know one thing, that I know nothing. Socrates, whatever you do will be insignificant, but it is very important that you do it. Gandhi, and then my favorite, it's weird not to be weird. John Lennon. What do those quotes all have in common? If you know it, shout it out. If you're at home and you know it, you have to shout really loud so we can hear you. I'm sorry? They're paradoxes. Thank you, Ellen. They're paradoxes. So you're saying, what's a paradox? I know you are. First service, all I got was, well, they're old dead people, which is not untrue, but it wasn't what I was looking for. Thank you very much. Here's a definition of paradox. A paradox is a statement or proposition that despite sound or apparently sound reasoning from acceptable premises leads to a conclusion that seems senseless, logically unacceptable, or self-contradictory. Now we're going to add one more paradox to that list, this one made by the most famous person of all, and that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what he said. Happy are those who are sad. Happy are those who are sad. It's not exactly how he put it, but it's essentially what he said in the second of his Beatitudes. So let's take a look. Please join with me. Uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1, 2, and 4 this morning. Are we ready? Matthew chapter 5, verses 1, 2, and 4. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, the disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, skip to verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comfortable. Comforted, I'm sorry. So here in this beatitude, Jesus said, Blessed. And if you remember from last week, the original word translated as blessed here is the word makarios, which means deeply happy, fulfilled, and contented. It is well with my soul. Happy or blessed or happy are those who mourn or those who are sad, which is essentially what the Greek word pentheo translated as mourn here means, for they shall be 
comforted, not comfortable, but comforted. Happy are those who are sad. A paradox, right? But how does that work? How in the world do those who are sad, that is, those who mourn, experience makarios, that it is well with my soul sort of happiness? Well, in order to answer that question, we must first of all discover what type of mourning Jesus was talking about here. Or I could put it this way, blessed are those who mourn over what? As I survey the scriptures, I find two basic reasons why people mourn or why they are sad. First of all, people in the Bible mourn because of an adverse situation they find themselves in. And I'll call that situation-based mourning. People mourn in the scriptures, secondly, because of sin. So I'll call that sin-based mourning. With regard to situation-based mourning, that's the first of the two types of mourning found in the Bible, there seems to be two subcategories. There's circumstantial situation-based mourning. This is the mourning that occurs over bad things that just seem to happen. And there's consequential situation-based mourning, which is the mourning that occurs over bad things that arise as consequences to bad decisions. So let's talk about circumstantial situation-based mourning first. Bad things happen for no apparent reason in all of our lives, don't they? Things like sickness or injury or even death for that matter. The loss of a job, car problems, financial problems, storm damage, pandemics. They just happen. We didn't do anything to bring them about. And it's completely natural for us to mourn or to grieve over these kinds of situations, over these seemingly random events that bring sorrow or distress to our lives. As a matter of fact, the book of Ecclesiastes tells us in chapter 3, verses 1 and 4, for everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to, here it is, mourn, and a time to dance. So bad things happen, first of all, for no apparent reason, and they do give us cause to mourn or to, to be sad. But bad things also happen for a reason as consequences to bad decisions. So I've switched gears now. I'm talking about consequential situation-based mourning. Here are some examples. People sometimes get arrested and put in jail because they commit crimes. Houses sometimes burn to the ground because people fall asleep with lit cigarettes between their fingers. Poor health sometimes occurs because people gamble away their money or are in some other way poor stewards of it. And financial ruin sometimes comes because people gamble away their money. I just said that, didn't I? Sorry. And as a result of these things, they grieve and they mourn over the consequences that come out of those poor decisions. And you know, the Bible is full of this type of mourning. Here's just some examples. In Genesis chapter 4, we find Cain mourning the consequences of his decision to murder his brother Abel. Crying out to God in verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 2, we find David's son Amnon so consumed by unfulfilled lust towards his sister Tamar that he mourned to the point of illness. In 1 Kings 21.4, we find King Ahab mourning due to his covetousness. He wanted Naboth's vineyard. Naboth refused to give it to him, so he went home vexed and sullen 
the scripture says, laid down in his bed, turned his face to the wall, and refused to eat. That sounds a bit like a temper tantrum to me. In Matthew 27, 5, we find Judas hanging from a tree because his mourning over betraying Jesus was just too much for him to bear. Bad things happen to us sometimes for no apparent reason and sometimes for very good reason. In either case, the resulting situations are very painful and they give us good cause to grieve and to lament and to mourn. The good news, however, is that our God is extremely merciful and he extends comfort and healing and restoration to these types of situations. Paul put it like this to the church in Corinth. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He said, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So without a doubt then, God brings comfort to us in our situation-based mourning, whether they're circumstantial sort of situations or whether they're consequential sort of situations. Nevertheless, I don't think that's the type of mourning that Jesus was talking about when he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I believe he was referring to the second type of biblical mourning that I mentioned earlier, and that's sin-based mourning. Bible scholar Adam Clark concurs, or more accurately, I concur with him as well as with other theologians. In his commentary, Clark described those who mourn as, and I'm quoting now, those who feel their spiritual poverty mourn after God, lamenting the iniquity that separated them from the fountain of blessedness. Only such persons as are deeply convinced of the sinfulness of sin feel the plague of their own heart and turn with disgust from all worldly consolations because of their insufficiency to render them happy have God's promise of solid comfort, end quote. So with that, let's now consider the second type of mourning found in the Bible, that is sin-based mourning. And as with situation-based mourning, I also find in sin-based mourning two subcategories. There's public sin-based mourning, which is the mourning that occurs over public sin or really sin in general. And there's private sin-based mourning, which is the mourning that occurs over private or personal sin. Now, before I dive into sin-based mourning, I want to take just a moment to explain the difference between it and consequential situation-based mourning, and that's because on the surface, they look an awful lot alike, but they're not the same thing. Here's how they're different. Consequential situation-based mourning is the mourning that takes place due to the consequences, keyword, of our bad decisions or to the negative outcomes of our sin. Sin-based mourning, on the other hand, is the mourning that takes place due to our sin. In other words, consequential situation-based mourning is the mourning that takes place because we got caught, whereas sin-based mourning is the mourning that takes place because we did wrong. And there's a big difference between the two. All right, with regard to sin-based mourning, then, let's talk, first of all, about its public or its general aspect. When Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, as I've already mentioned, I believe he was referring to those who mourn, first of all, over the general presence of sin in the world. 
as did the prophet Jeremiah, for instance, who said with regard to the sins of, the, of his countrymen, and this is found in Jeremiah chapters 8 and 9, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I may weep day and night. Jesus also mourned in this way. In fact, he absolutely wept over the sins of Jerusalem. Listen to what he had to say in Luke chapter 19, verses 42 through 44. He said, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So just as Jeremiah mourned over the sins of his countrymen and Jesus mourned over the sins of Jerusalem, we too should mourn over the sinfulness of this world that we live in. We should lament and weep over the injustice and the cruelty and the racism, the immorality and the lack of integrity that exists in our society today. We should deeply grieve over that. But here's the thing. I don't think we do that as we should. I think we've been so become so desensitized to sin due to gross overexposure to negative input that comes into our lives as well as to the insidious influence of postmodern relativism which espouses no absolute truth that we are not moved as we ought to be by the presence of sin in our world. But we need to change that. We need to change that if we are to experience makarios, this blessedness, the deep Christian joy, or that it is well with my soul sort of contentment. Because Jesus himself said, blessed are you who mourn, that is who mourn, first of all, the general presence of sin in the world. But also, and I think more centrally to this beatitude, and this brings me to the second subcategory of sin-based mourning, who mourn the specific presence of sin in their own lives. This type of mourning, or godly grief, as Paul refers to it in 2 Corinthians 7.10, comes out of the sincere realization that I, I have rebelled against God and that I am hostile towards his will and that it was my sin that nailed him to the cross. And therefore, the type of mourning that always precedes genuine repentance. It was this type of mourning that moved Isaiah to cry out in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe is me, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips. It was this type of mourning that cut to the heart of the 3,000 in Acts chapter 2 who had just heard the gospel message, prompting them to plead with the apostles in verse 37, Brothers, in light of what you just said, what shall we do? And it was this type of mourning that convicted the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, verse 13, to beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This kind of mourning proceeds not only from the initial realization that we're sinners, but also from that continuous, ongoing recognition that that fleshy part of us or the sinful part of us will remain intact, at least to some extent, throughout our entire earthly lives, although Less and less, of course, as we grow in Christ. 
It was this kind of mourning that caused the Apostle Paul to lament in Romans 7, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Then he finishes with this great line, wretched man that I am. I, for one, am so grateful for Paul's honesty here. It encourages me. It's that type of mourning. Mourning over sin, both the world's sin and especially our own personal sin that I believe Jesus was referring to when he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. But that then begs the question, why? Why does this mourning over sin elicit God's comfort? And this is a really important question, as the comfort Jesus mentions here seems to be the key to our experiencing makarios, or the blessedness as a result of our mourning, and thus the key, really, of making sense of our paradox. Happy are those who are sad. The answer to this question, why does mourning over sin bring about God's comfort and thus produce makarios, or blessedness, is really quite simple. Here it is. When we are sad, and I'm, I mean really sad, truly sad and brokenhearted about sin, about the world's sin, and especially about our own personal sin, it's then, and really only then, that we will drop to our knees in a spirit of contrition and repentance before our gracious and forgiving God. In other words, genuine mourning over sin produces genuine repentance of sin, which in turn leads to genuine comfort from sin. Comfort that actually comes to us on three levels. The first and most fundamental level on which we experience genuine comfort from sin that begins with that genuine mourning over sin is that of salvation. The comfort of salvation comes when out of the deep sorrow and heaviness of heart produced by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, we come to the end of ourselves and of our man-made ways of getting right with God, and then we call upon the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, at which time, Paul tells us in Romans 10, 13, we will be saved. And as he points out in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, declared as children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And we are thus comforted because we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we now belong to our heavenly Father and that no one can pluck us from his hand. John 10, 28. The second level on which we experience genuine comfort from sin that begins with that genuine mourning over sin is that of sanctification or our growing in Christ-likeness or growing in holiness. The comfort of sanctification comes when as children of God, as those who have experienced the comfort of salvation, we find ourselves from time to time guilty of grieving the Spirit with our sin and mourning over that sin and ultimately confessing and repenting of that sin, which results in the assurance that we've been forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness and restored back into a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. I want you to listen how, to how David described this type of comfort in Psalm 32 upon having confessed his sin with Bathsheba. 
He said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then he takes a little pause, switches gears here for a minute, and talks about his pre-confession, pre-comfort state of being. He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then he goes back to talk about his confession followed by his comfort. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. And rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. What a great passage of Scripture. The third level on which we experience general comfort from sin that begins with genuine mourning over sin is that of translation. The comfort of translation comes in our knowledge and conviction that there is coming a day when we will be translated. When we will leave this world and be done forever with sin and its consequences, when God, Revelation 21.4 says, will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And when death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. So with that comfort of salvation, of sanctification, and of translation in view, I don't think it's any longer a paradox to say happy are those who are sad. That is, those who are sad, truly sad about sin. Three quick points of application, then I'll be done, all right? In view of what we learned from this attitude, I think we need to, first of all, resensitize. We need to resensitize. It's understandable, considering the culture we live in, for us to have become desensitized to sin. But understanding how we got there is not enough. It really does us no good to simply acknowledge that. To shrug our shoulders and say, I guess I've kind of become numb, numb to sin. I mean, look at our world. Look at the world we live in. Who wouldn't? But that's just not enough. We need to, by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, do something about it. We need to begin making decisions that will help to resensitize us to sin. On the positive side, that will likely involve us being more intentional about drawing closer to the Lord, spending more time in prayer and in the reading of his words so that our hearts might beat more in sync with his. And so that what angers and grieves God also angers and grieves us as well. On the negative side, it will likely involve us changing some things, changing what we watch on TV maybe or what movies we go to, or what sites we visit on the internet, or what books we read, or what crowds we hang out with, maybe even the job we work at. Resensitizing ourselves to sin is absolutely critical. And it should be worth it to us as Christians to do whatever it takes. So how will we know when we're getting there? How will we know when we're beginning to become resensitized to sin? Well, I think we'll know when we become truly sad. Truly heartbroken, first of all, about the prevalence of sin in this world. When we, for example, are truly embarrassed when risque scenes pop up on our TV shows and the movies that we're watching with our kids, when that really bothers us, 
when we're shocked and dismayed at the degree to, we, we, the degree to which we hear God's name taken in vain around us and even among our acquaintances. And when we're filled with sorrow at the amount of greed that we see in our world. And when we're truly distressed and pained over how much hate and racial disparity there is in our nation. And we will know that we're becoming resensitized to sin when, when we become truly sad, secondly, and especially about the remnant of sin left in our own lives. When we, for example, twinge with sincere regret when bad words come from our mouth when we're deeply disappointed for joining in the latest gossip, when we feel a heaviness of heart after telling that little white lie, when we lament over the poor attitude we've had toward those on the other side of the, the quarantine or the civil unrest debate, that's when we'll know. That's when we'll know. So we need to, first of all, resensitize ourselves to sin. We need to secondly repent of the sin we've become resensitized to. We need to go humbly before the Lord with our sin and say to him, as David did in Psalm 51, Oh, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. We need to resensitize. We need to repent. And lastly, we need to receive the forgiveness that God freely offers those who confess and repent of their sins as well as the comfort and the blessedness that is the makarios that God promises to those who mourn sin. Resensitize, repent, and receive the forgiveness of God. Blessed are those who mourn the presence of sin, the sin of the world as well as and especially their own personal sin for they are the ones who will repent and who will seek and receive the forgiveness of God and who will as a result experience the great comfort of God. Worship team, come back up and join me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. This is a convicting message. And Lord, I know that we have become desensitized to sin in our world for a variety of reasons. I've shared just a couple. But Lord, we want to be holy because you are holy. We want to be righteous because we know that within righteousness comes the fullness of joy. That's where that abundant life comes from that Jesus talked about. So make us a people that aren't skittish about looking at our own sin, but want to happily shine a bright light upon our lives. We want it gone, Father. We want the sin out of our lives because we don't want there to be any obstacles between us and you. We want to experience your blessing that it is well with my soul. 
peace and joy and contentment. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand. Let's continue worshiping together.